Turning with me, please, to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel and the chapter 15. I'm quite sure this morning that the Lord is going to speak to someone or someones in this meeting. For six hours almost on Monday, I spent meditating upon this chapter. Almost six hours. And with a note, paper and pen, I noted down a number of things that I felt would be the leading of the Lord for this morning, only to put on that cursed Facebook or YouTube, is that what you call it? And this, your boy Riddle preached on this chapter last Sunday. I wasn't here. I didn't know he preached on it. And the first thought came to me, well, you'll have to abandon that and go somewhere else. And then I listened to him, and I must say that I was blessed, and I got a lot of stuff out of it. But very little that he said from this chapter I had noted down. And so powerful is the Word of God. So we're back in this chapter this morning, and it's not by coincidence. It is because there's something somewhere here that God wants to minister to and speak to the hearts of men this morning. I'm quite sure this had never happened to me, never happened to me before. And yet the Lord knows what He's doing. Let us bow in a moment's prayer, please. Father, we thank you and we bless you, Lord, O God, for your ways of working. And we thank you, Lord, for your precious word that's so full, so full of truth so full of application. And Lord, we just ask this morning, Father, while there's so much, so many chapters and so many verses and so many words that we could preach upon this morning, and yet we're back here again, Lord, our God, for some reason, and that reason has to be, Lord, that you want to uh, bring someone's attention this morning to what you're going to say. For God speaketh once, yea, twice, yet man perceiveth it not. And so we pray, Lord, there'll be a perception and a reception of thy word this morning, and that you will be glorified, and that your presence will be amongst us, for we ask it in the Savior's name and for his sake. Amen. Claire, my, my daughter, last Christmas bought for me the biography of uh, Dwight Eisenhower. Eisenhower was the supreme Allied commander who led the joint forces into France and D-Day. He was twice president of the United States of America, and he was a brilliant man in so many ways. In his book, he made this statement which riveted itself upon me. He said that in 1918, when the end of the, came to the end of the first war, that the truce should never have been signed. He said the Allied forces should have went on and dismantled all of the German munitions and all of the German machinery 
And he said that if we'd have done that, we wouldn't have had World War II. I thought that was an awesome statement because 52 million people died in World War II, the population of England today. I thought that an awesome statement. And we have the very same scenario, those that listened to Stephen last week, and as I listened to him, we have the very same scenario here uh, with this man Saul. God commanded King Saul to go and to, uh, amongst the Amalekites and to wipe them out and not leave one of them. He said, utterly destroy them. He says, slay them and consume every one of them. Every, every infant, every suckling, every ox, every sheep, every cow. Saul achieved 99%, but there was 1% he didn't. And 1% was the problem with God. You know, 1% is always a problem with God because it's not the complete thing. It's not the fulfillment of what he has commanded and promised to do. And if you're not fully committed this morning to God and to his word, then 99%, you might as well have no percentage at all with God. We're not talking, not talking about man. He spared the king and some of the best of sheep and cattle, and he came back elated. He came back cock of the hoop to Carmel, and he set up a tablet of stone. He set up a monument at Carmel to the great work that he had done. And he was so pleased with himself, but God wasn't pleased. God, he, he was deceived. He, he, he had lied. God was far from pleased with what Saul did. And you heard it last week, and it was preached powerfully. And I'm not touching the end of this meeting message at all, this chapter at all. But I want to tell you that God was not pleased. He was vexed. Look at verse 11 of this 1 Samuel chapter 15. It repented me. You know God doesn't repent of sin, for he has no sin. But he repents of what he gives to and what he does to men sometimes. And that's what he's doing here. We repent, we repent, we repent of sin. God has no sin. But he repented that, that I have set up Saul to be king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments and it grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all night. You know that word cried there is only used this one time. The translation of the word cried is only used one time, and it's used here. It means to be blazing red hot with anger. Now I want you to get this into your mind this morning. This man, this man Samuel was raised out of his sleep by God. And he cried with a heart hot with anger, burdened, burdened for the state of what has happened. How many pastors, how many ministers, how many leaders and believers today are vexed and angry? How many of us really weep this morning in the night watches at the breaking of the commandments of our king, of our government, of our authorities? Can we not say this morning to the House of Windsor, to the House of Lords, to the House of Commons, you have turned back from following me and have not performed my commandments. Rather, they've smashed every one of them and continue to smash them every day. But there's nobody seems really concerned 
How many people are wakened in the night crying over the state of our nation for righteousness exalted the nation and sin is a reproach to any people. Samuel wasn't the only servant of God that wept and stayed up all night because God was vexed, because God was angry. Oh, that we might feel, that we might feel what God feels as he looks on the world and as he looks on the church even this morning. He was not the only one. Uh, I'll tell you that many wept. Jeremiah wept over Judah. Abram wept over Sodom. David wept over the children of Israel all night long. I water my couch with tears. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Paul wept over the Jews. And on it goes, my friend, men of God, who when they heard and felt that God was angry, they were angry. And they wept and they cried all night. But it wasn't enough for Samuel to weep all night. He had to do something about it. And you know, my friend, it's not just enough to pray and thank God for prayer and thank God for praying people, but there's things that we have to do. We have to put feet to our prayers at times. He had to go and find Saul. And he had to go and face Saul. And if my reckoning's right, he had 15 miles to go. After spending all night crying and weeping unto God, he had to get up of his knees or get up of his belly and he had to go and find Saul and face Saul. One of the hardest things it must be for a prophet or a servant of God or even a preacher is to face men and women with their sin. Is to face men and women about the way they're living. Is to face men and women about their evil and their wickedness. Not easy. And it's certainly not easy when you come to face someone in high authority like this. We're told now, oh, don't be saying much about the king and don't be saying much about uh, the government and don't be saying much about the authorities. You have to be gentle and you have to be, uh, respect them and you have to be loving and we have to be kind. My, father, my friend, the scripture knows nothing about that. The scriptures tell us time and time again that we need to face sin. We need to face evil. We need to face these men in high places and in authority. We need to face them with the word of God. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what John the Baptist did and his head was taken off. That's what Jeremiah did. That's what down to the word of God many did. That's what Stephen did and he was stoned to death. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ did and they crucified him on an old wooden cross. We need to face sin. We need to face leaders. We need to face those that have broken the law and smashed the commandments of God. May God raise up men. May God raise up those who will come out in their pulpits and stand for truth in these last days instead of trying to please the congregation and please the people so that they'll get a month and they'll get a salary and they'll get a pension. God help us. In any other walk of life, 99% would have been good. In any other walk of life, 99% would have been excellent. But God said, go and wipe them out. Wipe them out. Don't leave one of them. And that's what Israel says they're going to do with Hamas, and they will need to do it. Because like Germany, they'll come back, and they'll come back, and they'll come back again. He said, go and wipe them out. One percent doesn't matter to God. Either do it or don't do it. Either go all the way or go no way. 
Either go through with God or don't go through with God. Either fulfill what God has called you to do. Either obey his word or don't obey his word. Either obey it in the tank and obey it in membership and obey it wherever you can or don't do anything. Because God expects full and complete obedience to the word of God. This portion, and I was so challenged through Stephen last week, this portion of scripture takes us right back to Genesis, to the fall of man. Because if you study this chapter, and if you study Saul, and you study of everything in it that you have at the fall, you have rebellion, you have stubbornness, you have covetousness, you have pride, you have greed. You have all the things that happened at the fall of man. And one of the greatest things that affronts the eternal, living, loving God, my friend, this morning, is disobedience. 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 He hates disobedience. Tell me, are you an obedient Christian this morning? Are you obedient to this word that you've read and you studied and you hear preached from this platform? Are you obedient to God this morning? Or are you stubborn? Saul was stubborn. He went a bit of the way, but he didn't go all the way. He went 99% of the way, but he didn't go all the way. Therefore, the kingdom was taken from him. And the blessing was taken from him. I tell you, God's people, many of God's people are not living in blessing because they're not obeying. They're not obeying. And I tell you, if the whole church of Jesus Christ lived in obedience to the word of God, we would be in revival. We would be seeing God moving every day in our fellowship and in our church. But there is rebellion in the ranks. There's stubbornness in the ranks. And remember, stubbornness, he says here, is the same as witchcraft. Not a bit different than being a stubborn Christian and footing about with, with demons. That's what the word says here. I'm not saying it. May God help us to be obedient Christians. Now, there's a couple of things I want to say this morning and hope will not be long. First of all, in this chapter, and you can turn to the verse 1 of it if you haven't. Turn to verse 1. The first thing in this chapter we see is a historical application. A historical application. Because it says in verse 2, listen, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came out of Egypt. 500 years before that, this he's talking about here. 500 years. The wheels of God grind slow, but they grind sure. When they were coming out of Egypt, when the children of Israel had crossed and coming over the waste howling wilderness, remember they were thirsty. I want to put this in context this morning. That's what I tell you. There's so much in this word. They came to Riphidam, which means wilderness. They were, Moses was leading a million and a half, maybe two million of them, and they ran out of water. And God struck the rock at Riphidam, and the water flowed. And it followed, that rock followed them all the way. At that moment, Friend, at that moment when the water flowed and the rock was smitten and the people of God were getting blessed, then came Amalek, descendant of Esau, Edomites, whose descendant this very day is Hamas. And these crowds launched an attack 
and the children of Israel as they were coming out, but they didn't face them to the front. You know the story. Read it in Exodus. I think 17. They, they came in behind. They didn't face them to the front. They came in behind. The Word of God says, and they struck the women and the children and the old people and the feeble people. That's what they did on October the 7th. They struck the, struck the defenseless children. They struck the old women and old pensioners and old people and they drew them in and brought them in and still have them in, in bondage this morning. This is the very same crowd. This is the very same thing they've done. They came in from behind. They didn't face them to the front. The Word of God says they were abominable and filthy men who drinketh iniquity like water. Moses said they feared not God. And then he said this, that's why the great wrath of God is on them. And that's why the great wrath of God is on them this morning. This was the first time that Israel had to fight. She never had to fight in the 400 years that she was in captivity in, 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 in Egypt. They were slaves. Slaves don't fight. They never fought on the way out. They were, rest, they were taken out by the blood of the Lamb and brought through. This was the first time that they ever had to fight. And when had they to fight? They had to fight when the blessing came. They had to fight when the water, which speaks of the Word and of the Holy Spirit, when the water and the Word was let loose, then came Amalek. And when blessing comes into an assembly and blessings into a church and when the Word has been preached in power and the Holy Ghost is moving, then cometh the devil. You better believe it. You better believe this school behind us is not going to go without attack. Don't be foolish enough to think. We might be riding on the crest of the wave at the moment and the money might be coming in and the builders might be going on, but let me tell you this, then cometh Amalek. And he'll come in the most dirty way you could ever think. He'll come against the children and the old people. And he'll come into the assembly. He'll come amongst the elders and the deacons. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. You watch him this morning. If you're looking blessed in your life, if you're going into the tank tonight, and God bless those who are honoring the Lord tonight. If you want to go on and go through with God, then he'll come, he'll come. And so that's what, that's what happened. This was the first time that they had to fight. Every time Israel had to fight, it was a fight in defense. They don't start wars. They protect their God-given rights on their God-given land. And that's what they're doing this morning. And pray for them. Pray for them. Because they're the only nation in the world with God's name on it. E-L, Israel. So that's what's happened here. Just a more immediately the water and the blessing came. Then came Amalek. And then when Moses said, listen, what do we need to do? We need to pray here. And Moses said, choose out men from among you and get up onto the mountain. And he got up onto the mountain and Aaron Hur came and, and held up the hands of Moses you know that mighty story, the power of prayer, they held up the hands of Moses. And as they held, Aaron held up the hands of Moses, Joshua prevailed against the Amalekites in the valley. But when he got tired and weary and the, and the hands went down, the, the prevailing stopped. They started to win the battle. 
Oh, I'll say to you on Wednesday night, get into this prayer meeting. I was so glad last Monday night that I was in this prayer meeting. So glad. I was so blessed in my soul to hear young people and others crying unto God. There's no hope. Only in God himself. Oh, my friend, get out on Wednesday night. Get out on Monday night. Nothing else is too important. Get out and start to pray and start to praise and start to hold on for the blessing that's surely going to come. The first time they fought and they went up onto the mountain and they prayed. Her, Aaron and Moses speaks of the Trinity. And we haven't time to go on with that this morning, but I'll tell you when we're praying in the name of the Father and in the Son and the Holy Ghost and he's getting his rightful place, the enemy will be rooted. He'll be rooted. And praise God he will. And he'll be rooted from this place. Now here's two words in verse 2 that so challenge me. Thus saith the Lord, I remember. I got locked on those words. God says, I remember. 500 years had passed. Generation after generation had passed, but God hadn't forgotten. God hadn't forgotten. God requires that which is past. He doesn't forget. Doesn't concern me whether God remembers or not. But if you're not saved this morning, it could should concern you that he remembers. Do you hear that? doesn't concern me. Let me say that again, that God remembers. Because one day he said to me, in the power of his word, your sins and iniquities, I will remember no more. Hallelujah. They're blotted out into the sea of my forgetfulness. No remembrance. Praise God to be saved this morning. Praise God to have sins forgiven this morning. No remembrance, no recovery, no return, as far as the east is from the west. Hallelujah! So far has he removed. My, it doesn't concern me. In fact, I'm glad that he does remember. I'm glad that he does remember. As the Father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. Boys, I pray that every day. Lord, I'm dust. Lord, I'm nothing. Lord, I'm nothing. I do. And I thank God, and in my weakness, and in my failures, and in my blunders, and in my faults that I make every day, and so does all of us. I praise God. I praise God that he remembers I'm but dust. Oh, what a God he is. I'm glad he remembers that we're dust and we're ashes. But hold on now. There's not only a historical application here. There's a semantical application. And I want you to get this this morning. See, there's much today talked about anti-Semitism. Those that hate primarily and attack the Jewish nation. 
And those parades that you see on the streets of London and Sinn Féin and everybody else that backs the Palestinians, it didn't start on the streets of London or New York. It didn't start with the Labour and it didn't start with the, with, with, with the, the left people. It started in the womb. We covered that the other, night, the other day. It started in the womb of Rebecca when Jacob and Esau, there was a struggle. That word struggle in the womb is jihad. That's where the word jihad comes from. There was a struggle. There was a battle that went on in the womb. And Esau is the descendants of these people. And the battle still going on tonight. Still going on tonight. You see, look at verses 4 to 6 now. I want to bring a point out here that's, that's not only applicable, but it's, it's uh, for the very day in which we live in. Look at verse 4. And Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Teladam. 200,000 footmen and 10,000 men. He went down to the Amalek and he didn't finish the job. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and laid wait in the valley. Now watch this. Saul said unto the Kenites, Go ye depart. Get you down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For ye showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they come up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. Now hold tight to that. Hold tight to that. God blessed the Kenites because they blessed Israel. You see, the Kenites were a peaceful, they were a neutral, they were a helpful people. They came from the relations of, 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 of David's father-in-law, of Moses' father-in-law. They were pacifists. And although they lived amongst these terrorists, they didn't take part, they didn't take sides. In fact, they helped us save all Israel. All Israel. What did God say in Genesis chapter 12 to Abram? I will curse them that curseth thee, and I will bless those that bless thee. And my friend, you study history, and you will know I would be afraid this day to raise a Palestinian flag. I would be afraid this morning to say one word against Israel. They're the apple of God's eye. And someone said, it's like sticking your finger in the eye of God. I tell you, those protesters would need to take heed. They'd need to take heed. You study history and you'll find that every nation that rose against God was put down. Babylon, Assyrians, the Turks, the Romans, the Herods, the Hitlers. Iraq, Iran, they're all going to be smashed before God. And listen to this, Syria, Syria's raising her nose, raising her voice at this moment. That butcher there that has killed thousands and thousands in that civil war, even the second into millions, many of them children, and they have the impunity to stand and condemn Israel. Isaiah 17 says this, Damascus, Syria, will be taken out and it'll lie like a ruined heap. That hasn't happened yet. Syria will be reduced to ashes. Damascus will be reduced to ashes like a ruined heap. It hasn't happened yet. It happened before this jihad's over. 
So they need to be very careful. Yes, God blessed these people. And God blessed those that blessed Israel. And God curses those who curses Israel. And he said to these people, get out. He gave them the opportunity. He gave them that space to get out. He gave them that truth to get out. Get out before we go down and slay them. You get out, lest you be slain with them. Flee! Flee! Can I say to you this morning, there's 57 Islamic nations, one and a half billion people, and many of them have condoned the militants of the Hamas, Hezbollah, Fatah, and all of them. They're all baying for the blood of the Jews this morning. They're all crying to get hold of the land of Israel. Jerusalem is the center of Israel. Israel is the center of the world. They're all after Israel. The fight is on. The battle is on for the Dome of the Rock. It's on. And the time is very short. Time is very short. Here's what I read the other day. Islam believes that all Muslims are soldiers in Allah's army. And if they don't fight, they have to financially support those who do. And billions and billions are flowing in from these Arab-rich countries into Gaza, into these men. They have three goals. Here's the three goals. Here's the three goals of Hamas this morning. Here's the three goals of most of the Arabs this morning. The three goals is this, especially the militant Arabs this morning. Drive all Westerners out of the Middle East. Exterminate every Christian and every Jew. Establish one world Islamic government with a religion of Sharia law. The British government, we had people here from London. I married a fellow from London here last Saturday here in this people. The London people were telling me that the British government are afraid. They're afraid of the Muslims. They'll, they'll, they'll let them do almost anything while they, while, while they persecute them themselves. And they're not even Christians. There's an awful, awful anti-Semitism going on. They, they, they can do what almost what they like to do. They're afraid. They can make speeches and public speeches and they can condemn Israel. They can call them butchers and they can call people everything. And yet, yet, they're afraid of them to do anything about it because they're going to take over anyway. Someone says to me, why do you support Israel? Let me tell you why I support Israel as I come down to a close this morning from this portion of Scripture. We're not out of context. No, no. We're, 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 we're being blessed of the Lord because we love Israel. And as long as, 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 as America stands and she's wobbling at the moment and France is wobbling at the moment, but they'll pay for it. Why do I, why do I love the Jews? Because Christ, Christ Jesus was a Jew and he died for me. Because the word of God was written by Jews, and I love the Word of God, for without it we couldn't be saved. The patriarchs, the prophets, the apostles, the twelve disciples, the church all came through the Jews. Historical, semantical. Lastly, there's an evangelical here. I told you I wouldn't be touching the end of it. It's even done that admirably.
staying with the Canaanites for a moment. Saul said, go, depart and get out from among them, lest I destroy thee with them. That's a message of separation. It's the same message that came to Noah and his family before God destroyed and wiped out the world. He provided an ark. He says, flee, flee, you and your household, into the ark. It's the same scenario as happened in Sodom when God said to Lot, flee. Flee out of Sodom and take your family with you and get out, for I will destroy this place. Flee to the mountain of Sore where the new day is dawning. Flee, separate yourself out, or you'll be destroyed with them. I say to you that's not saved this morning in this meeting, listening to me, wherever you might be this morning, I say to you, flee man, flee woman from those head holes you were in last night. Flee from that iniquitous crowd that you're keeping company with, they'll damn you. Flee from the pornography, flee from the filth, flee from those things that are hindering you and keeping you back and are going to destroy you. Flee man like the, like the, flee man like the prodigal that he left the swine talks and flee to the father's house, flee to the place of safety. There the judgment of God falls and you'll burn in hell forever. That's what the word of God tells him. Flee from the hell hole. Flee from the gambling, feel from the drinking. Flee from all these things, my friend. Flee now. We're giving you an opportunity this morning. We're making an air corridor for you this morning to get out. Get out, get out before the judgment comes. Do you hear me? Get out before the great wrath of God, Moses said, falls. And Moses, Moses said, the great wrath of God and because Saul didn't slay the Amalekites, the Amalekites slayed Saul. And the devil will slay you, man, if you don't slay those sins in your life and come to the cross and come to the blood. It was, a, it was an Amalekite that slew King Saul. It was the Germans came back and killed 52 million people. It'll come back. You need to flee this morning. Flee as hard as you can. And to you backslider this morning as I close, this is a message of separation. It says the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And some of you here this morning, or maybe not, even, maybe not here, but some of you listening to me this morning, and you're stuck in some old dead church, some old ecumenical church that has no life, no power, no fire, and you're like Elijah in the cave, as dark and as damp and as gloomy. And the Lord gives you the word this morning, come out from among them, get out from about them, for the judgment of God will fall upon them. And it'll be surprise you, the judgment of God that will fall on many of the churches in Northern Ireland. Flee, man, flee to the cross, flee to the gospel, flee where the blood is, flee where the table is. As he said this morning, we're tired of fooling about. Flee, he says, flee. Listen, listen to what, 
what Revelation says in Revelation 18 and 4. Therefore come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins and that ye receive not the plagues. Come ye out from among them and be ye separate, said the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. Believer, you touching unclean things. Would you have the audacity to come around this table this morning and you're tinkering with pornography? Would you have the audacity this morning to say that you love the Lord and you live like the devil all week? Whenever Mary was pregnant, let me tell you, everybody knew it. She was only 60, 17 years of age. She was in a town with no more than eight or 900 people. And from the very early days, people would have known that she was pregnant. A woman knows when she's pregnant. Does anybody know that you're carrying Christ this morning? Does anybody know that Christ is formed in you this morning? Is there any signs of it? The plagues of revelation. The plagues are about to break. I tell you with all my heart that I can muster this morning as I read and pray the word of God. I can hear the sound of the horse beats of the horsemen of the apocalypse. They're on the way. And it can't be very long, my friends, till we hear the shout. Come up, Heather. Listen as I close what Peter says. He says the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. We're speaking now to those who are, who are, the, who, who, who are disobeying. If these Kenites would have disobeyed, they'd have been destroyed. You're getting an opportunity this morning, backslider, carnal Christian. You're getting a back, an opportunity again the second time in the mercy of God from this chapter. To put all on the altar to give all to God, to hold nothing back. Peter says the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heaven will pass away with a great noise, that noise, a sissing noise, and you hear it every day in Gaza. The elements will melt with fervent heat, the earth and the works that therein shall be burnt up. And here he says this, see and then that all these things shall be dissolved. That is, you put a one of them tablets into a glass of water, paracetamol, you wait a wee minute or two and it's dissolved. That's what's going to happen to the world. Do you know that? It's going to be dissolved. You can see now how it can happen. He says this because this is on the verge. Peter says, and this is going to happen. And you see all the signs that it's going to happen. What manner of persons ought you to be? And he says this, of all holy conversation. You know, that word conversation just doesn't mean language. It doesn't mean talk. It means that, of course, and I hope your tongue's clean. It means that, of course, but it means the whole life, our whole lifestyle. It means our living when we get up in the morning till we go to bed at night. It means our life before our family, before our children, it means your life in the workplace, in the farm, in the factory, in the shop. You see, friend, listen. Saul was a believer. 
And there's no doubt about that. Saul was anointed and filled with the Holy Ghost. He did mighty exploits for God. He rooted out the Philistines and most of the Amalekites. But because of his disobedience, his stubbornness, his rebelliousness, he lost the crown, he lost the anointing, he lost the kingdom, and he lost his life. Oh, you say, God's cruel. No, no. God's commands have to be kept fully. If we err in one, we err in all. We err in all. As David Ravenhill said in one of his books, Saul was defeated. F-E-E-T-E-D. He lost the feet. Hebrews tells us that we follow after holiness. We're to pursue after holiness. That's our walk. Many of God's people are defeated. E-E-T-E-D. They've lost their feet. They've wobbled. They've fallen. They're down. The feet speaks of dominion. It speaks of authority. It speaks of victory. The God of peace shall come shortly and bruise Satan under his feet. It speaks of authority. Oh, let us this morning as we go forth, let us this morning after hearing from this scripture twice in a week, let us take authority this morning. Let us claim the victory. Let us dig in the heels and the feet of the gospel of peace. Let us claim the promises, claim the pardon, claim the power. Don't stop short like Saul. Follow on, follow on. Pursue a holy life, holy living, without which no man shall see the Lord, and the clouds will burst, and we shall go, and we shall be ever with the Lord. God bless you. Amen.